AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. School of Humans. What would your life be like right now if coronavirus hadn't emerged in 2019? What would the world be like? I'm Sean Raviv. I'm a full-time freelance journalist. I travel around the country and world to tell stories. I've reported on HIV, neuroscience, AI, facial recognition, and a host of weirder topics. In 2020, I did none of that. Instead, I spent months afraid of going to the grocery store, afraid of touching doorknobs and hugging my best friends. I worried about keeping my wife and two-year-old son safe. I worked half-time or no-time. I got the news that my aunt died alone in a hospital. I spent a lot of time on a couch, depressed. That's just me. You've got your own list. Now multiply that by 7.8 billion lives ground to a halt after a novel coronavirus showed up in Wuhan. Nearly 200 million people have been infected with coronavirus since December 2019. More than 4 million have died. So many lives disrupted or damn near ruined. We want our old lives back, if that's even possible. While a truly universal pandemic, one that affects everyone, everywhere, may be unprecedented in our lifetimes, humans and viruses have evolved side by side. Our history has been shaped by plagues, pandemics, viruses, and diseases, and the fight against them. Today, they are in combat more than ever. And vaccines have moved from the background to the foreground of our daily lives. So as a journalist and generally curious person, I want to know what went into them. In this podcast series, we're going to take you deep into the science and the people behind the coronavirus vaccines. We'll travel back in time to meet the first inoculators, follow a path from legendary healers in China to obscure country doctors in the UK. 
from an enslaved African in Boston to the man who invented dozens of vaccines. And we'll draw a direct line between them and the shots we're getting today. In this episode about beginnings, we'll talk to a virologist who played a key role in releasing the genetic sequence of coronavirus. We'll also hear from an evolutionary biologist who explores the origins of all coronaviruses. From iHeartRadio and School of Humans, I'm Sean Revive, and this is Longshot, the 250-year journey to the COVID-19 vaccines. Ever since coronavirus became the biggest story in the world, vaccines have been our greatest hope to stop it. The coronavirus vaccines were produced in record time, but they're not slapdash overnight inventions. They're a culmination of centuries of research and advances, and some unbelievable experimentation that began way back when, with smallpox inoculation, which marks the beginning of one of humankind's greatest achievements, the ability to protect from disease. It's a practice so old that nobody knows who first attempted it, or exactly where it originated. To even begin to figure that out, you have to probe nameless healers, myths, and legends. Here's writer and actor Leo E. Ivy Chen to tell us one of them. To get to the top of the highest of the four sacred Buddhist mountains in China, you must climb 60,000 steps over piles of snow in winter, past the waterfalls and the lush greenery in summer. It will take you two days to get to the top. Mount Emei, or Emei Shan, was created 260 million years ago by a volcanic event so explosive that it caused massive extinctions across the planet. The mountain is 10,000 feet tall. It juts into the heavens above the clouds like the divine place it is. The mountain is one of the holiest sites in Buddhism. There are more than 30 Buddhist temples on Mount Emei, including the first one built in China. Like all holy places, there is a legend about Mount Emei. A thousand years ago, the son of a local governor got very sick from smallpox, which by then had plagued China for at least a thousand years. The governor offered piles of gold to anyone who could help his son. Three Taoists traveled from Mount Emei and offered their services. By washing the smallpox, the Taoists said, you could grant protection from the disease. The governor asked the Taoists to teach him this practice. The Taoists agreed, and before they returned to the mountain, they placed a book containing the secret of inoculation underneath a metal incense thurible. Upon opening the book, the governor learned that this technique of inoculation had long ago been invented by a female Taoist. As a reward for her pioneering discovery, she was turned into a goddess. 
So this myth, this one on Mount Omei, it was written in the 17th century by a man named Fu Shang Lin. And Fu Shang Lin has his own interesting connection to inoculation. Li Wei is going to tell us that story, set about 700 years later. During the reign of Qing Empress Shunzhi, there were at least nine outbreaks of smallpox in Beijing, the city where he lived. Each time there was an outbreak, the emperor left his home to go to a bidoushuo, a place to quarantine from smallpox, including one bidoushuo that was on a literal island. This way, the pox could not reach across and infect him. Despite these precautions, the emperor caught smallpox. As he lay dying, the emperor had to decide on a successor among his six young sons. He chose the second son. At a young age, he'd already survived smallpox. With protection from the disease, the boy was more likely to have a long rule, be a stabilizing force for the empire. And he was. This song became the Kangxi Emperor, the longest ruling emperor in China's history. Though the Kangxi Emperor survived smallpox, he did not escape its trauma. Every time there was an outbreak of smallpox, he was haunted both by his father's death and by the isolation. And so when he grew into an adult, the Kangxi Emperor searched far and wide for the empire's best inoculators. Around 1680, two inoculators were chosen to protect the emperor's children. One of them was Fu Shangling, the author of the story about Mount Ermei. Those early Chinese inoculators used several different methods to protect people from smallpox. One involved blowing the scab of a smallpox sufferer into the nose of a patient using a bamboo shoot. Another method had the patient wearing the clothing of an infected person for two or three days. Yet another had a child lay underneath a quilt with a sick patient so that the patient's chi would transfer to the child. Some methods worked better than others. Even in these early times, the inoculators had standards for who could or should be inoculated. They avoided the procedure for medically fragile patients who were more likely to develop full-blown smallpox. It was not recommended for the weak or otherwise diseased or for pregnant women. They thought it was better to inoculate before puberty. It's unclear which inoculation method was favored by Fu Shang Lin, but the story he wrote about Mount Amei and the three Taoists may be evidence of the earliest known inoculators, so long ago that the first crusaders hadn't yet invaded Jerusalem. But it might just be a story. Real documentation of inoculation doesn't come for about 500 more years. In volume six of the late British historian Joseph Needham's enormous series, Science and Civilization in China, there is a reference to a 1549 medical text by a Ming dynasty physician that, quote, casually mentions smallpox inoculation, as if it is already by then a common practice in China. 
That's 150 years before the first known inoculation in, say, England. But the point is, nobody really knows exactly when or where inoculation began. All we have are stories. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. In the 1980s and 90s, a relatively new disease ravaged the city of Edinburgh, Scotland. It was called Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, the disease caused by HIV. In Edinburgh, HIV spread fast, often through the sharing of needles by intravenous drug users. They would intravenously inject drugs and share the needle. They passed the needle down, you know, amongst the, the, these people in these kind of tenement buildings. That fueled this massive HIV outbreak in Edinburgh. That's Eddie Holmes, a virologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of Sydney. Back in the early 90s, he was in Edinburgh studying the spread of HIV. 
So what we were trying to do was trying to work out how the virus was spreading through that population, how it how it had diffused and how it got into the city and how it's spreading. I do remember, though, actually, getting in... Um, Around that time, we got a call from Beatrice Hahn. Beatrice Hahn, who was then working in the university... A virologist then working at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Hahn asked Eddie if he was interested in joining her on an HIV-related research project. She's been the person who's done more than anyone else to reveal the origins of HIV. And she asked me in 1990, was I interested in, in working on that? And um, I said, no, I'm going to do my own, my own work on something else. He turned her down to concentrate on his own work. By then, AIDS had already killed more than 16 million people. It was known that there were two main types of HIV, HIV 1 and 2. Han and her colleagues, and not Eddie, would go on to discover that neither type of HIV came initially from humans. Both originated in primates, HIV-1 in chimpanzees and HIV-2 in Sudi mangabes, each of which carry simian immunodeficiency virus, or SIV. The virus jumped to humans at least seven times, mostly in areas around Congo. It was a stunning discovery. Han said that it was especially sobering that two very different primate species could serve as a host for human pathogens. She was even more worried because she knew that there were dozens more species of primates that carried their own forms of SIV. Han's blockbuster paper was exciting to Eddie Holmes, but he had some regrets knowing that he could have been a part of it. That was like saying no to the Beatles in 1963, you know? I missed, I missed my opportunity to do some great work on that. Instead of discovering the origin of HIV, Eddie began working in metagenomics, the study of genetic material taken directly from the environment. So our focus has always been on these kind of key species of humans. But with metagenomics, you could look at anything. So we were looking at this, just any these wild invertebrates that no one had looked at. And we found this amazing diversity of, of viruses in nature, everywhere. So these animals we never looked at suddenly saw this, this huge diversity of viruses. The virus sphere was enormous. Opening that door was facilitated by this, this technology, the metagenomics. By the time coronavirus hits, Eddie has become a pretty big-time evolutionary biologist. He studied the flu, dengue, HIV, hepatitis C, and other viruses. He's got grants and awards and fellowships, but he still hasn't had his Beatles moment. Not since turning down the chance to discover the origin of HIV back in the 90s. In 2012, Eddie moves to Australia to work at the University of Sydney. He begins a partnership with Professor Zhang Zhen Zhang, then working at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Beijing. He's a character, as they say. I used to have this thing where whenever I sent an email to him, he would reply within 15 minutes, right? Because he was always checking. So I used to send him an email like at 6 a.m. in the morning thinking, right, now I'll get some, he's, he must be asleep. It's like 3 a.m. in Beijing, I'll get a bit of sleep. So I sent him an email, so I was right. And then 10 minutes later, hi, Eddie, it's amazing. So he'd wake up in the night just to check his email, you know? He's extraordinarily hardworking. I mean, like off the scale. Using metagenomic analysis, Eddie and Jang sampled animals of all kinds looking for RNA viruses. That is, viruses that have ribonucleic acid as their base genetic material, like coronavirus. Some of the animals they look at include bats, mice, pigs, and birds. 
but also snakes, crabs, spiders, ticks, shrimp, crayfish, woodlice, tapeworm, mosquitoes, centipedes, millipedes, leeches, earthworms, octopus, snails, oysters, mussels, clams, barnacles, even goddamn sea cucumbers. No species is too obscure. In these animals and their parasites, they discover thousands of new viruses. A lot of their work is done in and around Wuhan, an enormous city in central China. It's not very well known in the West at the time, but with 11 million people, Wuhan is bigger than New York or Paris. It's a very big city. It's extremely well connected. And in China, it's very famous for being a travel hub because the Yangtze River goes through it. It's this big river kind of delta, or river system rather. And the train system, you can get from basically anywhere in China to Wuhan, about six and a half hours, as an international airport. So it's a big hub. It's a really big hub. Also, around Wuhan is just this, you know, pristine natural environment. So actually, it's a very interesting place to sample. In 2014, Eddie and Zhang even visit the place most associated with the first cases of coronavirus, the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market. The local CDC took me there because they said, Look at this place. It's a really good place for a disease to emerge. It's probably like two big supermarkets glued together. It's a set of indoor alleys with a kind of road through the middle of it. So there's lots of it. It's like an indoor, a big indoor market. And there's lots of stalls and there's, there's kind of gutters. There's lots of things on sale. So there's lots of dried products, lots of fish, lots of frozen products. And there's one section where there were wildlife. I mean, I saw mammalian wildlife there. So there's, I saw rodents there and a variety of other things. There's also these famous kind of like menu boards outside showing some of the kind of wildlife that they're, they're selling. It's very enclosed. So it feels kind of like, you know, feels kind of sweaty and, and cramped. And it feels like kind of incubator in, in a way, you know. I took a photograph, a really crappy photograph, I took of these raccoon dogs, okay, in these cages. Now, raccoon dogs are, are weird, they're canids in the dog family, and they're fur farm, and I think they're used for, for food as well. And what I realised is that raccoon dogs, they were implicated in the first SARS outbreak of 2002, 2003, because there were positive raccoon dogs in these markets in Guangdong. And there they were, in this market in Wuhan. During the two years before the outbreak of COVID-19, Eddie and Jang are working on a study at Central Hospital of Wuhan. They're studying patients with acute respiratory disease symptoms and trying to find out the cause. Again, this is before COVID-19. But what that meant was we were kind of like on site almost, looking at the same disease syndrome in the right tissue samples with the right technology. And so we happened to be in the wrong place, the wrong time, if you like, when it all kind of started. And that's gave us a kind of an open, an open door to really try and look at the, some of the early, the first cases to see what was going on. In mid-December of 2019, a 41-year-old worker at the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market begins getting pneumonia-like symptoms, fever, cough, pain, dizziness, that kind of stuff. A few days later, the patient is admitted to Central Hospital of Wuhan, among the very earliest identified novel coronavirus patients in the world. The same hospital where Eddie and Jang have already been studying patients with similar symptoms. 
By this time, Eddie is back in Australia, and Zhang is in Shanghai. But because of their prior work at Central Hospital, they, particularly Zhang, are in prime position to see what's going on with these strangely afflicted patients. Early in the afternoon on January 3rd, Zhang receives a package, a metal box holding a test tube packed in dry ice. Inside the test tube is a swabbed sample from the sick market worker. By this time, word of a new contagious virus is spreading among the public health community. The first news reports about this mysterious illness have been published in China. There are 44 or so confirmed pneumonia of unknown origin in cases. The seafood market has been closed. Many countries and the World Health Organization are trying to figure out what the heck is going on, and if this disease is going to cross borders. Jane does not know that the test tube in front of him contains a sample of a virus that would take over the world within months. But he knows it's important. Rumors are already spreading that it is SARS-like, which in China, and especially in Chinese virologist circles, is a big deal. The first severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, epidemic was discovered in the city of Foshan in China in November 2002. Eventually, it spread to more than 8,000 people in 29 countries. SARS-1 was internationally embarrassing for Chinese leadership. They could not contain the outbreak and could not treat the disease. Western media reported aggressively on China's failures. The last thing Zhang or his country wanted was another SARS, and Zhang strongly suspected he had it sitting in that test tube. For the next two days, working around the clock, Zhang and his team worked to sequence the virus. Around 2 a.m. on the 5th, it was done. Eddie gets an email from Zhang. Zhang emailed me and said, please call me immediately. I was driving to the beach with my in-laws for breakfast, right? Because it's January, it's summer in Sydney, right? And that was, that was like 8 a.m. in Sydney time. So it must have been like 5 o'clock in the morning in, in, in Shanghai. And so I rang him on, I was in the phone with my in-laws. And um, he said they managed to get the complete genome on the 5th of January. And they, 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 they literally worked, you know, nonstop. So it took 40 hours. They worked nonstop. So to put it in context, it's actually very interesting. So it took 40 hours from sample arriving to getting the full genome. Okay. It took two years, two years for HIV to be described as the cause of AIDS and it took 40 hours to find this, this, this virus. Okay. Now Jang knows he has a virus very closely related to SARS-1. He reports his findings to China's Ministry of Health and to public health officials in Wuhan. He also submits the genetic sequence for review to a database run by the U.S. NIH and as part of a paper co-authored by Eddie for the journal Nature. But the genetic sequence has not been released publicly, which means researchers can't study its thousands of bits of data and use it to start figuring out how to stop it, how to build a vaccine to protect people from the virus. To put it in perspective, there is at most one reported death at this point. No other countries have known cases. Nobody could have guessed this virus would change the world. Still, the idea that there could be another SARS or MERS is terrifying. MERS, or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, was another coronavirus that had spread in 2012 and killed 900 people in 18 countries. Nobody wants to see a third coronavirus outbreak. 
Six days after Zhang finishes sequencing the virus, the genetic information is still not out there. But rumors of the novel coronavirus have spread, as has word of the embargoed paper in Nature. But Zhang doesn't know how Chinese officials will react to him releasing the sequence. And a few days earlier, the government told local authorities not to publish information about the virus. Because the Ministry of Health were controlling everything. And they wanted, they wanted to control the message. They wanted to damp down on rumors. They wanted to be in control of the situation. So, and as the days went on, more information was slowly being kind of released. And so there was, a, I think the Wall Street Journal on January 8th published that it was a coronavirus. I think the Chinese authorities on the 9th announced it was a coronavirus. As, as the days wore on, it got more and more kind of ridiculous that they weren't saying exactly what it is. And this is, this is the sequence, right? We sent our paper off to Nature, off to the journal Nature, and um, they were very keen for the sequence to be released as well. On January 11th, Jang gets on a plane in Shanghai and is about to take off when his phone buzzes. It's Eddie. And I said, we need to release these data now. Okay, I've been emailing about this, so we have to get this released. And he said, okay, okay, we do it, we do it, we do it. And I said, can you send me the sequence? I haven't got the sequence myself. Can you please send it to me, right? And so he got, I think he got one of his, one of his postdocs to email me the, the sequence. So it arrived on my, on my email. And I thought, oh, you know, crikey, I'm now, in, I better get this done, right? So, and that whole process for me, getting the sequence in the email to releasing it, I think it was like 52 minutes or something like that. In fact, I didn't even check what it was until after I I posted it. So it could have been any old junk, but luckily it was actually the virus. So um, that, and then that, so that, that was that moment then. And that was a huge kind of burden off my shoulders at that point. He posts the sequence on a website called Virological, a somewhat obscure open access epidemiology discussion board founded by one of Eddie's friends. Zhang is not the first to sequence the virus. By this time, it's already been done at private labs in Wuhan, as early as late December. But Zhang and Eddie's sequence is the first to catch international notice. Eddie tweets out a link to the sequence on January 11th, Sydney time. This is the moment kicking off development for the COVID-19 vaccines. One of the first replies to the tweet is from a professor of microbiology at Mount Sinai in New York City. He sends a gif of hundreds of planes taking off in unison, along with the words, and so it begins. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What if it never began? That is, what if we were never struck by the coronavirus known as SARS-CoV-2? What if 2020 was just a normal year? We never quarantined, never wore masks, never sanitized groceries. We just lived. I spoke with another evolutionary biologist. His name is Joel Wertheim. He's an associate professor of medicine at UC San Diego. He ran these computer-based simulations of the virus going back and forward in time. The goal was to describe the likeliest version of the way the virus spread after it first infected a human being. But while doing so, he discovered that the very likeliest outcome was that we never had a pandemic to begin with. That coronavirus infected one person and never a second. That coronavirus dematerialized as quickly as it materialized. And before we even knew it existed, it was gone. Seven out of ten of our simulations went extinct on their own. So without any mitigation efforts, without any sort of attempt to slow down transmission of the virus, the natural progression of 70% of SARS-CoV-2 introductions into the human population result in natural extinction. So we were sort of unlucky in that we were, we were part of that 30% where it did not go extinct. Yeah, it was uh, really just bad luck in that regard. Joel specializes in taking viruses back in time using something called the molecular clock. I'll let him explain. The molecular clock is a really important tool and one of my favorite to use in research. It basically helps us estimate the number of changes that are happening in a viral genome over time, over weeks, months, and years. And by sampling a lot of different viruses at different time points, we can estimate that rate of change. And then we can basically count the number of mutations going back in time that it would have taken to get back to the ancestor of all of the viruses we saw. So we can put a date on a virus that was never observed based on looking at the rate of change in viruses that we did observe. In case you didn't get that, 
Joel and his colleagues take RNA of viruses at different times, count the differences in the number of mutations at each point, and use the differences to estimate when viruses start to diverge from each other. In 2020, Joel and some colleagues used the molecular clock to estimate when the first cases of COVID appeared in Hubei. Hubei is a landlocked central province in China. Wuhan is the capital. Using all the information available on all known cases in Hubei, they determined that the first case, the index case, appeared in Hubei sometime between mid-October to mid-November. That's weeks before anyone knew of a mysterious virus making people sick. Even local experts like Jiang had no idea at this point. So the first outbreak of the virus almost certainly occurred much earlier than even the first reports in China. In the U.S., we're all out trick-or-treating for Halloween 2019, and the virus that would eventually halt all our lives may have already been spreading across the world. Crazy. Maybe even crazier is another study by Joel. This one was done way back in 2013. This is a bit of a a, a hipster coronavirus paper. We were studying it before it was cool. I'm still proud of this paper. We're actually we're prouder of it than ever. Uh, more people, and by that I mean more scientists, have read this paper in the last year than read it in the previous eight years. More people are downloading it. More people are citing it. We are shocked that this paper was rediscovered. I'm not shocked that the paper was rediscovered, in our case by Gabby Watts, the producer on this series. And the reason I'm not shocked is that the paper has the tantalizing title, A Case for the Ancient Origin of Coronaviruses. That's exactly the case Joel and his colleagues make in the paper. That coronaviruses are super damn old. They looked at a lot of coronaviruses. So you have turkey coronaviruses, you have magpie robin coronaviruses, you have bovine coronaviruses, um, various different bat coronaviruses. Oh, yeah, I don't even have the names of them. I just have the, they, they just have boring names. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I kind of disagree, Joel. What about duck coronavirus, thrush coronavirus, widgeon, not pigeon coronavirus, and porcine epidemic diarrhea virus? Before Joel's paper, molecular clock analysis suggested that the common descendant of coronaviruses, the sort of coronavirus zero or coronavirus eve, existed about 10,000 years ago. But this seemed far too recent for Joel, especially since bats and birds, the most common carriers of coronaviruses, have been around for millions of years. The molecular clock works really well for viruses in the short term. You can watch a virus like SARS-CoV-2 or influenza spread around the world, and you can count those mutations and see how quickly they occur. And you can then estimate going back in time, well, this virus probably existed six months ago, this ancestor a year ago, this answer 10 or 50 or 100 years ago. But once you start getting past that point in time, things start to get a little weird for viruses. And the reason we think that is is because those mutations that used to click off regularly, well, the same mutations seem to be happening over and over and over again. So instead of a mutation indicating, you know, a week or a month or a year, 
you're going to count one mutation and that's actually going to be 10 or 100 years because that same change has happened 10 or 100 times. So you start to undercount. So instead of looking at a virus and say, well, if we just put the you know, evolutionary rate on this virus and it's you know, 10,000 years old, your viruses there could actually be 10 million years old and they would look the same. In other words, Joel believed the molecular clock for RNA viruses was broken. When you think about evolution and change in animals or other living things, you tend to think of evolution favoring change. Adaptation to different environments, promotion of new positive traits. But with viruses, it's different. In fact, it's not even agreed upon by scientists whether viruses are living things. They have an impact on living things. But as one virologist put it, viruses exist at the border between chemistry and life. If viruses may not even be alive, it stands to reason they would evolve differently than living things. And they do. Viruses, when they evolve, tend to remove negative mutations rather than accentuate the positive ones. That's called purifying selection. Mostly when we think about viruses or evolution in general, we like to think about uh, natural selection and evolution favoring changes. We adapt to this and we adapt to that. And we think about this doubly so for viruses where they're constantly adapting to the host environment, to the immune system, to drugs that we try and you know, throw at them. But really, the main driver of evolution in viruses is actually to stay where you are, to, to keep your genetic uh, sequence where it is. And that's purifying selection in that it removes changes. And what we notice is that if a virus is able to change from one, say, uh, genetic position to another, what it's going to do is it's probably just going to keep making those same changes again and again. And that's strong purifying selection. And when you're forced to make the same change again and again and again, rather than making any change you want, that's strong purifying selection. And that's going to hide the ticking of the molecular clock. It's going to make it look like only a 100 or a 1,000 years have passed when really it's taken a million years, but we've only made the same changes again and again and again. So after factoring in all the potential mutations that the molecular clock may have missed and that strong purifying selection may have hidden, Joel came up with an estimate for the age of coronaviruses. Now that's not SARS-CoV-2, our current adversary, or SARS-1, or even porcine epidemic diarrhea virus. That's all bat and bird coronaviruses, which likely originate from a common ancestor. The age they came up with? Not 10,000 years, 293 million years. Some things were different then. For one, the Earth had just one giant landmass, a supercontinent. Dragonflies and amphibians have just evolved, while primitive ancestors of mammals and cockroaches are on the way. No people. No dinosaurs, no Netflix. 293 million years ago is also not long after the time that mammals and birds first diverged from each other. This implies that ancestors of coronaviruses, which we find mostly in bats and birds, could be as old as bats and birds themselves. Maybe they developed in sync. Maybe coronaviruses are wondering, where do these humans come from? These humans that infected our world? 
But Joel isn't super confident in his number. He says it's an extremely rough estimate. As much as I'd like to think in all of that noise and all of that uncertainty, we managed to hit the nail on the head going back hundreds of millions of years uh, and identifying the split between bats and birds. I just think that that's a lucky happenstance. So we said, look, it's possible that these viruses have been around in bats since bats became bats. And these viruses have been around in birds since birds became birds. And you can't use a molecular clock to argue that they're younger because the molecular clock says they can be, well, they can be as old as time. Sometimes we tell stories because it makes us feel better. I'm a writer. Sometimes I tell stories to make me feel better. Sometimes to make others feel better. Or worse, if I'm being honest. Joel Wertheim says that the story his paper tells, that these viruses were around 293 million years ago, it may not be true at all. Coronaviruses might be far younger. It's just a PhD-educated, calculated, and simulated guess. But another virologist we've already heard about has also studied ancient viruses. Zhang Zhenzhang, Eddie Holmes' close collaborator, one of the heroes of covid I wasn't able to speak directly with Zhang, but here he is in a World Science Summit video in 2020. Just to make sure you understand, I'll speak along with Zhang. The discovery of virus in low vertebrates sampled from ocean. The discovery of viruses in low vertebrates sampled from the ocean indicate that the RNA viruses that still infect us today are ancient and have evolutionary histories that date back to the first vertebrates and perhaps the first animals. So, for the first time, we can definitely show that RNA viruses are many millions of years old and have been in existence since the first vertebrates existed. Viruses are everywhere, and our work makes it clear that there are still many millions more viruses still to be discovered. So, your RNA virus fear has been redefined and our works have changed the people's understanding. Like Joel's ancient coronavirus story, the story of Mount Amei, where the divine doctor comes down from the mountain and heals the governor's son, is probably made up. At least according to the source where I read it. I found the story in a University of London thesis by the medical historian Chia Feng Chang. In the paper, she makes clear that there is no contemporaneous written record of inoculation at the turn of the second millennium AD. In her thesis, Chang surmises that this legend was used to justify smallpox inoculation in the 1600s, when it was certainly practiced. Under the cloak of a heavenly goddess, she says, it would be easier to convince people to get inoculated. She says these stories may have been told to persuade patients or even doctors of the practice's worthiness. It's good PR for inoculators. Her theory is not quite as cool as a mystical doctor, a secret book, and a healer transformed into a goddess of inoculators working a whole millennium ago on a sacred mountain. But it's still a pretty good story. And how about Eddie Holmes's story? He may have passed on the chance to discover the origins of HIV, 
but he hit it big by posting the genetic sequence for coronavirus so that the world could start fighting the virus, create vaccines. It's finally Eddie's Beatles moment, right? Um, you mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation that you sort of missed out or you may have missed out on this, this Beatles moment of, uh, you know, tracking HIV back to Congo or Cameroon. Um, uh, but now do you feel like this this was your sort of similar moment so that you were able to sort of be there at the very, very beginning of this of this virus? I wish it had never happened. I honestly, I would change anything to not be in this position, I have to say. Anything that, so, you know, maybe I, it... It, it's, I don't regard any of this as good at all. I regard this as an absolute miserable thing to be involved in. So, uh, yeah, I think it might be the defining point of my, of my career. I think I'll always be remembered for this. But, I mean, I, I'd rather, I, I wish I wasn't. I honestly wish I wasn't. I wish it never happened. On the next episode of Long Shot, we're going to meet a family of inoculation entrepreneurs. And we'll speak to one of the first people to ever get a COVID-19 vaccine. Longshot is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by me, Sean Revive. My co-producer is Gabby Watts. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeartRadio and actor and writer Liyue Ivy Chen. Thank you to Falling Walls for the clip of Yang Zhen Zhang. Longshot was scored by Jason Shannon with sound design and mix by Harper Harris at Tune Welders. School of Humans. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.